Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ertube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. I'm your host, Casey Davis, and this episode is going to be a little mini series called Two Experts, where I'm going to talk about a topic with two different experts. The first expert is an expert because of their personal firsthand experience in the issue. And the second one is going to be an expert because of their training and knowledge from an academic route, like a professional route. So this episode is me talking to someone with firsthand experience with hoarding disorder. And then later this week, I'll release a bonus episode where I talk to an expert who is an expert by way of their profession in hoarding. So hope you enjoy. And here we go. So I have with me here the podcast host for That Hoarder. And I just wanted to thank you, first of all, for coming on and taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for asking me. And so one of the things that the audience might notice is that I'm not going to use your name, and that's because you've asked to be anonymous. And do I understand correctly, you're anonymous on your podcast as well? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I can talk more freely. My hoarding is a big secret in my life. And yeah, I feel like if people knew who I was, well, if people knew who I was, I wouldn't have the podcast at all. There's just so much stigma around the condition, and it's a hard thing to talk about. But if people don't know who I am, then I can talk openly. So where would you say, if you were to kind of paint as a picture of what hoarding looks like for you? I used to think it looked like too much stuff. And it does look like too much stuff. But I have come to understand that it's actually a big, messy combination of being scared to make decisions and get things wrong. It's not trusting my own judgment. It's a lot of fear. It's indecisiveness. It's layers of trauma. It's all these kinds of, I use the word messy deliberately, things. Hmm. Is there anyone in your life that knows that you struggle with hoarding? Yes. My best friend knows, although we have never talked about it, but she's the person who knows me better than anyone. And I know she knows and she knows I know, but we don't talk about it. My therapist knows, although even with her, it took a while to tell her. Other than that, it's just kind of accepted that within my friends that we don't do things at my house. Nobody asks why, nobody pushes it. And same within my family, I think they can't have not noticed that I don't invite people over. And they have known me 
as a messy person through my life, but how much they know about the full situation, I don't know. So how did you first realize that you were experiencing hoarding? You know, you talked about kind of being messy in your life, but when did you realize that maybe it had become something different than just messy? So I was definitely messy growing up. That was the thing I would be in trouble for as an otherwise very well-behaved child. And then I became a messy adult. And then there was a period of my life in my early 20s when I had no income for a while, for about six months, and then very low income for about a year after that. And I was in a place where if I got rid of something and needed it, it was impossible to replace it. I could barely buy my basics. So everything took on a new significance. And it was not inaccurate to say that what if I need it was a real question. And I think that was the period where I changed from a messy person to somebody who couldn't let anything go. And then when I started having enough money to live again, I held on to the stuff. I think partly I knew now that that was a real thing that could happen. And if it can happen once, it can happen again. And there was a lot of that. But also, I feel like it was there anyway. I feel like the period of poverty brought it out. And But even then, I didn't know the word hoarding. I didn't know hoarding was a thing. And I was convinced for a long time after that, that I had an organisation problem. My problem was I couldn't organise my things properly. And so I would buy shelves and I would buy boxes and it wouldn't solve the problem. So I would get folders and it wouldn't solve the problem. And it took me a long time to realise that I had a volume problem, not an organisation problem. And by then it was, it felt so entrenched that I just didn't know how to get out of it. So where are you now with hoarding, with that journey? I am in a place where I feel like my head has made a lot of progress and my home is making much slower progress. So I feel like I'm a lot better at being able to challenge my own bullshit when the hoarding part of my head is trying to justify why I need to keep something. I'm so much better at challenging that and getting being more rational about things and being more okay to let things go and all of that. What I'm finding is that the physical process of doing it is really hard and slow. So when I was in school, one of the things that they, when we would talk about hoarding, we would talk about kind of like two different subtypes. And one is when it's difficult to let anything go. It's kind of like the front door and the back door, right? Like it's difficult to get rid of anything you have. And then the other side of it was that you can't stop getting new things. So like you might get new items at a quote unquote normal pace, but you can't let anything go. And that can obviously cause a hoard. Or even if you let go of things at a normal pace, if you have so much stuff coming in, that can also cause a hoard. So do you struggle with one over the other? 
I would say an element of both. It's been more of a problem of letting things go, but I have certain boxes that if they're ticked, I want to acquire all the things. And so for me, probably the biggest one is bargains. If something is really cheap or if something is great value, I find that hard. My biggest one, to the point that I've had to stop going in them at all, is charity shops because it ticks. Everything's cheap. You're helping a charity. Everything's recycled because somebody else already owned it. It's all of these kind of, it's a mixture of I'm saving money, plus I'm a good person, plus I'm not making the world a worse place. All of those combine to mean that if I'm in a charity shop, I really struggle to not come home with things that I probably don't need. So for me, I'm not bringing everything in, but I do know I have certain weak points that I have to be really conscious of. And how do you, you know, you talked a little bit at the beginning about the stigma that surrounds hoarding. You know, how do you cope with that? Weirdly, there were two reasons I started the podcast. One was that I wanted there to be a podcast from the point of view of somebody who hoards rather than a professional. The ones from professionals are great, but I really wanted to hear that voice and it didn't exist. And so I thought there's a space I have to fill, which is kind of what I do. So it was partly that and it was partly that at that stage, I had nowhere to talk about this, nowhere. And I knew I needed an outlet and I didn't want to keep a diary. I have 40 odd years of trying to keep diaries and failing. So I thought, I'm just going to talk into my phone as like an audio diary. And so it started as I need somewhere to talk. This is a place to talk. And there's something about having talked about it now 112 times to a range to either about my experiences or to a range of professionals and hearing from other people because it took on this whole life that I wasn't expecting that does make me it reduces that shame to some degree because when you hear from enough people it's like you're in my brain or it's so helpful to hear you talk about it or just, I can really relate to that. And you think, well, these are good people. You know, maybe I'm okay. And also speaking to the professionals I've spoken to, which has been like academics and therapists and all sorts, is really, there's something about them just talking really normally about this thing that makes me think maybe it's okay. But then on the other side, I get so many messages privately because people say I can't say this publicly because nobody must know but I listen and I've got this problem as well and so it's a real I feel like the certainly here in the UK there are some quite high profile mental health anti-stigma campaigns and I feel like they've done good work but they have never moved beyond destigmatizing anxiety and depression and I am all for destigmatizing anxiety and depression, don't get me wrong, but I want them to destigmatize schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder and hoarding disorder and those that people 
have a much more negative reaction to, a much more judgmental reaction to. And I'm kind of inadvertently doing some of that work myself, unplanned. And there's something about if you keep saying this shouldn't be shameful to other people, you have to apply some of that to yourself, I think. Yeah. So which came first, the podcast or the therapist? The podcast. Do you think having the podcast helped you to seek out a therapist? Yeah. I started seeing the therapist about something different. I also have PTSD and I was seeing her about those kinds of issues. And I spent a lifetime or certainly an adulthood compartmentalizing this away. And so I have been really good about, I've had mental health support over the years and never talked about this. And so I went into this more recent relationship with that same compartmentalization. Just I'm here to talk about this trauma thing that's risen up again after being a bit quiet for a few years and I will keep the hoarding compartmentalized. And then after a bit of time, it was becoming an issue that I wanted to talk to her about, but I was really, really, it felt impossible. And then I just told her and we spent a long time talking about the fact that there was something I couldn't talk about. And then she was so nice about that, that I just kind of blurted it out and she's been great. Shout out to Claritin for giving me some free samples and for sponsoring this podcast. I am a seasonal allergy sufferer, which means that sometimes I'm lying in bed reading a book that is super happy and my husband says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Because I am sniffling and he thinks I'm crying. But no, it's just seasonal allergies. Luckily, that does not happen anymore because I use Claritin D. We can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sniffing, sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat. It's great. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies. It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. As for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter, you don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. 
It's called ADHD AHA, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD AHA, search for ADHD AHA in your podcast app. That's ADHD AHA with AHA spelled A-H-A. I love that because I, I feel like there's a lot of people that are seeing a professional and there's something that they're afraid to bring up. And we forget that there are more options than just say nothing or say the thing. Like there is this like third option of telling your therapist or your doctor, whoever, like there is something I want to talk about and I'm so frightened. And like that in and of itself, you can spend a long time processing before you're actually ready. Yeah, I really agree. And that's, you can have, there's something I can't talk about conversation without ending up disclosing as well. That can be really valuable. And I think there's a place for that because also therapists, like there's a phenomenon certainly with doctors where they know that if you kind of get up and you're about to leave and then say, oh, while I'm here, they tend to know that that's the real reason you're there. And the sore throat or whatever was just a ruse, but you actually need to talk about how depressed you are or or whatever it is. And I feel like most therapists would know that even if you're really open, even if your client is really open, there may still be things that are so well compartmentalized that you're not talking about. Yeah, we call those doorknob confessions as therapists, right? Like as you're walking out the door, you get your hand on the doorknob. Oh, by the way. Exactly that. Yeah. So have there been any techniques that your therapist has helped you with that has been helpful for hoarding? Yeah, I should also say I did have some CBT specifically for hoarding prior to this therapist. I didn't want to have it, but I was kind of compelled because of my housing. And I went into it very, very skeptical, but thinking I've got to do this to comply with you know, what I've been told. And it was actually genuinely really helpful. And so from that, there were a couple of things that I still use, even though this was several years ago. A big one is that we would kind of set a task that I would try and do between sessions so that, you know, we could see how it went. And I would get immediately anxious as soon as we started talking about it, that what if I can't do it? I don't know how, what if I can't? And the way she always framed it was to see it as an experiment and just test it out, just see. And framing things I was scared of, scared of trying as an experiment was so helpful because it suddenly, it switched from something you either pass or fail into something that if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't work, you just need to adjust things a bit. It's not that you've been useless. And that was so a real shift for me that, okay, I don't know if I can take five bags out, but let's see what the experiment shows kind of thing. I like that because it's this idea that however the experiment goes, you're going to have useful information at the end. Totally. Even if that information is that technique did no good at all, you just know that that's not the one for you and try something different next. The other thing that 
was really, really helpful that I still use all the time is at that point, what I would quite often do is I would set myself a goal, like I'm going to do some tidying in the kitchen. And then I would walk into the kitchen and just go, nope, and walk out again. I just couldn't. And what she got me doing was just question that nope, just work out what it actually is. And what I learned was that if I just said, okay, why no? And if I could work that out, then suddenly it was like, okay, that's a overwhelmed nope. Okay, well, I kind of know what to do when I'm overwhelmed. I've got tactics for that. Or if it's a don't know where to start nope, then I can kind of realize that's the issue and start looking at where to start. And just questioning what I felt was, I felt that it was like my brain shutting down. And she made me realize that it wasn't quite that and that you can ask why. And if you know exactly what's stopping you, it's a lot easier to address that than just if you've got nope and nothing else. It's like changing the period to a comma. Completely. And getting curious. Like my favorite, I think the most important thing I ever learned as a therapist was from a therapist mentor that said like, you just have to get curious. Completely. Yeah. I have a regular guest on the podcast who is a therapist who works specifically with hoarders and she does ACT, Acceptance of Commitment Therapy, and she's a big advocate of curiosity. And I think it's similar to the experiment thing. It's kind of, let's see what happens if, and it makes whatever you're trying to do less frightening and more intriguing almost. And then with the current therapist, I think the main, the big thing I get from that is less it's not a techniquey kind of therapy, but I get a, a lot more encouragement to give myself a break, encouragement to be a bit gentle with myself, to stop beating myself up so much. It's that kind of soothing, nurturing kind of help, which is so appreciated. Do you feel like that kind of help ultimately impacts how you are relating to your space or how you are relating to the hoarding tendencies? Yes, in a less direct way from the CBT. But I think something that we talked about when you were a guest on the podcast is that if you're beating yourself up all day, every day, it's really hard to take proactive action on anything it's really hard to either think you deserve a nice home or to just get out of bed because all you've done is beat yourself up. And I do think there's also something to be said for even if it's not impacting. Yes. Like, you still deserve to not hate yourself, even if you still struggle with hoarding. Yeah, absolutely. Even if there are no material changes in your surroundings. Yes, you deserve to feel like you're a decent person. So what do you think are some of the common misconceptions that people have about hoarding disorder? I think a big one is that it's about laziness. I think people think you just can't be bothered tidying up or can't be bothered cleaning. And that was an accusation I used to aim at myself all the time because I couldn't work out what else it could be. But when I really made myself examine that, 
I realized a couple of things. One is that if I was lazy and somebody came around and said, let me clean this all up for you, I would say, yes, please. Whereas as a hoarder, if somebody said, let me clean this all up for you, that would evoke absolute panic. I'm not a fan. I haven't watched it for many years, but based on the ones I have seen, I think the positive that can also be a negative is that more people are aware that this is a condition. But beyond that, I find that to make good television, to make entertainment, the person whose home it is has to be rushed and stressed into having a meltdown over a bottle lid or over a torn envelope. And the way it's done is very, it feels very exploitative. And while there are people involved who do seem to have some kind of understanding of hoarding, generally speaking, if a home is cleared very quickly and under duress, that is kind of prime... It's laying the groundwork for it to be filled up again really quickly because whatever caused the problem in the first place hasn't really been addressed. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. If somebody has a friend or a family member that's experiencing hoarding challenges, are there better do's and don'ts for that situation? It's tricky. I think the first thing I have to say is that if you grew up in a hoard, if your parents are hoarders and you grew up in a hoard, that does you damage, that causes trauma. And you are not responsible for fixing your parents' either illness or surroundings. And it's important to say that because what I see, and there's a great group called Children of Hoarders, and they advocate very strongly what I see, if you have a child of somebody with some kind of substance abuse problem, that child isn't generally expected to fix their parent. And indeed, most trauma specialists would advocate that they are not put in that position. Then there are definite do's and don'ts. I think the big one is to try and be led by the person. It might be I expect working with somebody who hoards in this kind of way could be an immensely frustrating experience. <laughs> I've got to tell you this. I know that even though I'm doing a lot better with my decisions and stuff, I know that I drive myself mad with all the prevaricating I do over certain things. So I can imagine sitting next to somebody and spending 45 minutes trying to make a decision about an empty Coke can would test your patience. And that's, you know, that's, so I need to say that it's okay if that's frustrating. I think if you can go at the person's pace, that's brilliant. And also ask what their priorities are. Because often a person who's helping might assume a certain priority, like say somebody can't sleep on their bed because of stuff. Somebody who's helping might assume that, well, obviously want to clear the bed first because you want you don't want to be sleeping on the sofa. But actually, for that person, they're not bothered at all about the bed. What they want is a clear path to the fridge. And if they've got that goal and that motivation, it's much better for both of you to be working towards that 
So I think try to not make assumptions. Be as patient as you can. Step out if it gets too much. And try and be led by that person and listen to... I don't know where the line is between how much you challenge someone and how much you go with what they want. And that's partly why people like therapists and the professional organisers who work specifically with hoarders, where they are very skilled in a way that I am not, because there is a line of kind of encouraging someone but not pushing them. And that's a tricky one. But if you can master that, then that is incredible. I always call it the de-hoarding muscle. You kind of exercise it a bit so that over time, like for me, like nostalgic stuff, that kind of thing, I can't deal with. I can't. But I know there's plenty I can be doing in the meantime. By the time there's only nostalgic things left, I will have exercised that muscle so much that it will be easier. And I can have faith in that because there are things that are easier now that weren't easy two years ago. And every bit of doing it, whatever that looks like, helps you move to the next bit of doing it. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis? It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must read for anyone in medicine from a doctor turned patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present, when the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Remember in 2018 when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries, while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Ultralado in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. I'm curious if you have a mantra or a saying or a, like a truth that you repeat to yourself or hold on to in those moments where it's difficult to get rid of something that kind of reminds you that 
you know, you may be getting rid of something, but actually it's about what you're gaining. And is there any sort of truism that's helped you get through those moments? Yeah, there's a few. I think one is that any progress is progress. Even if it feels too small to register on a scale, it all counts. I think one is there are lots of kind of regular objections that come up. And one of them is it will be a waste of money if I get rid of this. And just reminding myself that the money was wasted when I bought it and that what I do with it now makes no difference to the fact that I wasted the money five years ago, 10 years ago, whenever it was. So I remind myself of that. I remind myself I'm making a lot more progress when I make myself look at what I'm gaining. And I think I resisted that kind of approach for a while because it felt a bit like a bit twee, a bit look at the positives. <laughs> I don't really get along with that kind of thing. But actually, when it's, if I can clear those boxes in front of the freezer, then I'll be able to have frozen veg so I won't have to go to the shop so often because veg goes off. And it will be really nice to always have broccoli rather than only have broccoli when I've just been to the shop and it's not gone off yet or I've not eaten it yet. If I have a kind of, this is something I actually want rather than this being some a chore I'm being forced to do, that helps a lot. One of the sayings that I've heard other people say is, you know, when you feel like, you know, oh, but this thing is still, you know, to send this thing to the landfill. Oh, you know, I just, I can't send it to the landfill. And I finally heard someone point out like, you know, it's going to the landfill no matter what, like whether it spends 30 years in your house first and then goes to the landfill doesn't change the fact it's going to the landfill. Like the only difference is whether or not you have to suffer with it for 30 years. 100%. My location on most of my social media accounts is indoor landfill. And like we, again, we talked about this when you were on my podcast that it's not just that me keeping it won't keep it from landfill, which I would say like it's going to landfill whenever it's either going to landfill now or when I die. But then you added to that with, and the difference then is what are the next 30 years of your life going to be like? So it's not just that it won't keep it from landfill. It's that it won't keep it from landfill and my life will be immeasurably worse in the meantime. Yeah. Like it's going to the landfill no matter what. It's just whether it's going to take you with it. Yeah. So there's all these things that I remind myself of and and it does help. I found that really long-term goals don't do it for me. I tried ages for ages to just think that it should be enough that I knew what I wanted in the end. But I think that felt too big and too far and too impossible. So having a goal like I really want to be able to use the freezer again, which I can maybe achieve within a you know, within a week or within a month, that for me is working a lot better. So my last question is, you know, if somebody is listening and they're relating a little bit, you know, what do you think are maybe some of the early warning signs that someone is sort of passing that threshold from I'm a messy person to, hey, this might be moving into the area of hoarding? I think it's less to do with how much stuff is around you, although 
that is relevant. I think it's more to do with how you feel about the stuff that's around you. If you're imbuing this stuff with almost magical powers, if I get rid of this, then it means I didn't love my mum enough to keep it. Or if I get rid of this, I will never be able to get another one. My life will change and it will be awful. Or if I get rid of this, I might regret it for the rest of my life. It's those kinds, it's how you feel about the things you have and how you feel either when you try to get rid of it or when you think about trying to get rid of it. I had stopped even trying to get rid of things. So when I started doing the CBT and started really trying to actually make changes, I hadn't even tried for a long time. And it felt like learning to walk almost, the real basics. And that was because I guess I'd had a few years of trying and finding it hard and not knowing why and not having the resources to work out why and just shutting down. So if you're having those feelings when you get rid of something or if you've given up trying to get rid of something, I would look at what those thoughts and feelings are and see whether and really try and be honest with yourself about whether this might be a problem. And that might be reflected quite severely in your surroundings, or your surroundings might just look a little bit messy. But I would say it's more about what your thoughts and feelings are doing. You said when we first began talking that hoarding for you really isn't about the stuff. It's about the mental anguish that you experience when trying to decide to get rid of something. And as I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking about that decision, you you kind of reference this decision point where you decided, I'm just, it's so much anguish to decide to get rid of something. I'm just not going to decide anymore. Almost as if there was this, this place before where you suffered maybe for a long time with getting rid of things and it being really painful and being anguishing and that there was this part, this place where you said, I can't do this anymore. And I think that when we think of hoarding, we often think of the problem beginning when you make the decision to stop getting rid of things, that that's where the problem begins. But that's actually where the problem ended from your experience, right? Like the suffering and the disorder and the like the actual not getting rid of things is in some ways peace. It's a salve. It's the solution to what's really going on that you struggled with for so long. Yeah, that resonates. I feel like as the public, we get it backwards. Like we were looking at the point after you decide as like, that's the problem. The disorder is that you decided not to get rid of anything anymore and you don't care and, it, and you, all these things. But it really seems as though the disorder is the mental. And in the new DSM, you know, hoarding disorder is classified as an obsessive compulsive disorder. And it really makes a lot of sense because that mental anguish, the obsessing and the compulsion, that's the disorder. And someone who is now accumulating a hoard is someone who maybe just can't struggle like that anymore. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think the kind of tip over point was I ended a relationship and it had been a great relationship for a long time and then terrible for a few months. 
and I ended it and the ending was horrible because I wanted to and she didn't want to, but I did and it was very stressful. But I also felt a bit like, oh, phew, there's going to be nobody coming round for a while. And so it was, I think, adding to exactly what you've described was a degree of this is me reclaiming my space that really shouldn't help <laughs> in retrospect. But the, I think there was an element of this is all mine now. This is, I can do what I like. You know, that very kind of... Well, the reassertion of your autonomy. Yeah. And I think that didn't help with a sense that, yes, the the empowering thing to do is to stop trying. It makes a lot of sense now when you said, you know, going in and sort of emptying out and cleaning out someone's hoard really quickly just sets the stage for more because you've taken someone from that place of relief, right? Because I don't have to engage in the agony of trying to get rid of something and just immediately put them back into that place of agony. And if their stuff was what made them feel safe, sometimes very literally, some people feel like it feel like it's almost like a comfort blanket or whether it made them feel safe because it had memories in it or whether it made them feel safe for any number of reasons because it reminds them of when they were a teacher and they've got all their teaching materials. And add to that that nearly every person who hoards has either profound grief or trauma in their history, if not both, then ripping away that comfort blanket, however well-intentioned, and taking away the things that that person felt were familiar and comforting and safe, you can absolutely see why. I don't know if on that show they still do like the follow-up visits six months later or whatever, why they're quite often full again. And I think there is occasionally a good reason to do a kind of forced clear-out. But I think that is very much the exception rather than the rule. And sometimes it's what authorities go straight for when it feels like that will cause added trauma and you're dealing with a person who is probably already traumatized and that's why places fill up again. And so I'm not saying forced clearouts are never called for, but I think if that happens... It feels almost guaranteed that it won't be a long-term solution. Well, certainly, unless there is substantial support on the back end, it seems like that's just sort of waiting to happen. Well, this has been such a great conversation, and I can't thank you enough for your vulnerability and your willingness after a long day at work to come and talk about this with me. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, 
you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.